once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. There's an old truism in journalism that says if a headline asks a question, the answer is usually no. The question today, does this week's message follow that pattern? Teaching team member Caleb Click finishes the series Ruth, the story of God's steadfast love, with this message entitled, Do We Matter? which covers Ruth, chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come this morning expectant because you're a God who delights to reveal yourself. And so we pray that you would take these words, the very end of the book of Ruth, this book that is all about your steadfast, hesed love. And we pray you would take those truths, those truths we've soaked in these past five weeks, and we pray you would press them deeply into our hearts now, that you would work through your spirit in such a way that we would leave this place knowing you and loving you more than when we came in. Speak through me in my weakness. Use me in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Middle school for many of us is not exactly a a fond experience. It's not one of those moments that most of us in retrospect look back on and think, you know, that, that's really something that I enjoyed. Uh, I think I can count on two fingers people who have actually said to me that middle school was this wonderful time in their life that they look back on fondly for most of us. I would say for the vast majority of us, middle school was this painful, awkward, kind of transformative experience where you spend three years of your life feeling incredibly insecure and not realizing that everybody else feels insecure too. You always think you're the only one. Uh, Well, that was my experience in middle school. Uh, It was painful, it was awkward, it was miserable. If I had a time machine, it's the place I'd skip. Because middle school for me, it wasn't just the painful awkwardness of that transitional period, it was a period where I got bullied really, really badly. It was a period that for me was incredibly hard and I I was small, I didn't break five foot till my freshman year of high school. I was hyperactive. All my teachers thought I had ADD and wanted to put me on a bunch of meds. And I had the social IQ of just about zero. And so I would go to school, and what I would find there was just these barrage of voices, every one of them there to taunt me. I'd go to class, and kids would tell me that I was ugly, 
They would make fun of my clothes. They'd make fun of the way that I talked. They'd make fun of the things that I liked. They'd question my sexual orientation. They would tell me that I was stupid, that I didn't add anything to their lives, that I had no value and I had no worth. And I remember vividly in eighth grade coming to class with an application to go to a high school that we weren't zoned for because that high school in our district offered this particular program I wanted to be a part of. And some of the kids in class found out what I was doing and they took the sheet of paper and they said, where can we sign this to get rid of you faster? And as a little boy, I would go home to parents who loved me profoundly and who knew that I was hurting, but who, as I've discovered as a parent myself now, as I've discovered, they knew absolutely, they didn't have any idea how to help. And I would go in my room, and I would close the door, and I would sit there in silence, and I would wonder if all those things those people said, I would wonder if they were true. If I was really ugly, if I was really stupid, if I really had no worth, and if I was gone, would anybody even notice? Did I matter? Those kind of existential questions, they don't stop in middle school. Those aren't the questions of an eighth grade boy. Those are the questions that every single one of us asks to some degree or another. It's the question you ask when you roll over in the morning and you look at your spouse, that question of, do I matter to them? Does my life have any significance? Am I treasured? Am I precious in their sight? It's the question we ask when we drop our kids off at school and we watch them walk away from our cars and enter into the doors and we wonder as they walk away, will they miss us? Do we matter? Do we have significance to them? Do we matter to our coworkers? Do we matter to our neighbors? Do we matter to this world? Do our lives the things that we do, the lives that we live, do they have anything of value to offer this world? Are they going to do anything of lasting significance? Or are we just small people, living small stories, who are here for one moment and gone the next, whose lives are but a little bit of flame that flares up and then crumbles away into dust? Do we matter? The answer of Ruth 4 the answer of Ruth 4 is that you and I, we matter more than we could ever imagine. And we matter to one whose opinion matters more than anyone else's because what Ruth chapter 4 says, what the gospel of Jesus Christ says, is we matter to God. And in the Hesed love of God, that love that we see so powerfully in the book of Ruth, that love that we see perfectly in the face of Jesus Christ, in God's Hesed love, there are no small people and there are no small stories. And while you and I may feel like a nobody in this world, we are somebody to God. We matter to him. Because in the economy of his steadfast love, there are no small people. You see it with Naomi. Naomi, in the grand scheme of things, Naomi's a nobody. The fact that you have a book of the Bible about a random widow in a random period of Israel's history is kind of an anomaly. I mean, who is this woman? She's one of thousands of Israelite women living at that time. She's not the only one who's lived through a famine. She's not the only one who's lost her husband and lost her son. She's not the only one who's struggled. And not only is she not the only one who's had tragedy visited upon her, but Naomi's a woman 
who based on what we know of the first chapter of Ruth, in many ways, the things that happened, they're her fault. She did not trust the Lord. She walked away from the Lord and she suffered the consequences of sin. She's the kind of person that so often just falls to the margins of society and gets forgotten. She's the kind of person you drive by in your car and you see them and we avert our eyes because we think in our hearts there's more important things to do and there's better uses of my time. Naomi's a nobody. She's a small person in a big world who does not seem to matter. And yet with the book of Ruth, what the book of Ruth shows us so powerfully, she mattered to God. He loved her. He loved her not because of anything that she had done. He loved her not because she could give him something in return. He loved her simply because that's who he is. And you see it in every chapter of Ruth. God loves her through Ruth. He clings to her through this Moabite woman, this daughter-in-law who has no reason to go with her into the land of Israel, but who because she loves her holds fast and says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Who says, where you die, I will die, and where you were buried, I will be buried. He loves her through Boaz. This man who provides for them with food and who protects their lives, but not only that, redeems the name of her family and redeems their land and does it at cost to himself by marrying her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Everywhere she turns, there is the love of God. But when we come to this last chapter, we see God's love showing itself in yet another way. God isn't finished loving Naomi. It says in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Now just stop there for a moment. Notice what we just said in this text. Once again, God is bringing life where there has been death. Because Ruth, Ruth's been married before. Ruth was married for almost 10 years according to Ruth chapter one. And yet what is the one thing she did not produce in that 10 years of marriage? A child. And here, at the end of the story, God takes a woman whose womb has been closed and he opens it and it says he gave her conception and she bore a son. It is a child of miraculous birth. And the women of the town, the women who greeted Naomi when she came back, they say this, blessed be the Lord, praise be the God of Israel who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which in Hebrew means servant. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The women look at Naomi and they lift their voices in praise to God, why? Not because God loved Ruth, though he certainly loves her, and not because God loved Boaz, though he certainly loves him. They say, blessed be the Lord, because God loved you. 
Look at the language. He did not leave you singular without a redeemer. He did not leave you without a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. He gave to you a daughter-in-law who loved you, who was worth more to you than seven sons, who was better even than the two sons that you lost, who gave you something they never could have provided because through her, God has given to you one thing more, a child. And notice this, who's the redeemer? It's not Boaz in this text, it's the baby. She is holding in her hands the living, breathing expression of God's love for her, God's provision in her time of need. Because the woman who thought her family was over, that they were dead and they would not come back, she holds in her hands the proof that that family that was dead, God has brought it to life. That that family that had no hope in future, now it has a hope in a future. And not only that, this woman who wondered who would care for her in her old age, how would she survive, who would provide, she holds in her hands the one who has been named servant, who all her days will care for her and provide for her and nourish her. And every need she has had, God in his mercy and in his hesed love, he has provided. She mattered to God. She may have been a nobody in the eyes of the world, but she was a somebody to him, and we know it for this reason. He did not leave her without a redeemer. I wish I, wish I had caught a hold of this truth earlier. I wish I'd grasped this as a middle school kid. I wish I understood it better now. But this is the truth that the entire Bible screams. Every single page, every single story, every single verse, all of it is screaming to you this in Jesus Christ. God loves you. You may be small in the eyes of the world, but you are not small to him. You may be a nobody in the eyes of the world, but you are a somebody to him. And you may be sitting out there and asking the question that I've asked a million times, well, if God really loved me like that, if he really cared for me, if I was not small in his eyes, then why has my life looked the way it has? Why have I been visited with pain and with trouble and with pain and with sorrow? And I know you're going to say that Naomi faced that too, but there's been no child of miraculous birth given to me. There's been no Ruth who's clung to me. There's been no Boaz who stepped into my life and it cost to himself, provided for me. Instead, I am sinking and I am alone, and I am broken, and I am needy, and I don't see his care, and I don't see his love anywhere. And if that's you at this moment, I would tell you, here's what the gospel tells you to go. Stop looking at your circumstances and look at Jesus. Because he has not left you without a redeemer. He has given to you a living, breathing expression of his love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and to you, even as one was given to Naomi, to you a son has been given. Because what does Isaiah 9 say? To us a child is born, to us a son is given. One who would be for us a greater Obed. The one who though he had the form of God, as Philippians 2 says, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took the form of what? A servant. 
who came into this world as a washer of feet, who came in human flesh for you, who was baptized for you, who was tempted for you, who suffered and died and was buried for you, who bore the Father's wrath for you, who was crucified for your pornography addiction, for your envy and for your hate and for your bitterness and your slander, for every lie that has come from your mouth, every little corner of your heart that has been twisted and perverted by sin, Jesus came to serve and to save you in the very midst of that. And the Father raised him for you. And not only that, Jesus, even as he sits at the Father's right hand, every breath he expends, it is for you. Because what does Hebrews 7 say? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he ever lives to make intercession for you. God has not left you without a redeemer. He has given to you the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, even for you. You matter to God. One of my favorite preachers is the man who was my pastor before I came here, a man named George Robertson. And I heard him give a sermon a few weeks ago, actually, where he told the story of a man named Ben Hooper. Ben Hooper was the former governor of the state of Tennessee almost 100 years ago. And he was a man who in the eyes of the world would look like a somebody. He was successful in politics. He was successful in business. He was well-educated. He was well-liked. But while that may be what Ben Hooper was later in life, that wasn't what he was as a little boy. As a little boy, Ben Hooper was a nobody. He was a kid who was born in a small town to a mother who did not know who his daddy was something that is a struggle for anybody, but at that time it was particularly so because it was a stigma that he carried with him everywhere that he went. He would go to the store and the adults would look at him out of the corner of his eye and he could hear them whispering behind his back. He'd go to school and the kids would mock him and they would ask him who his daddy was and where he had gone. And little Ben Hooper, in this big, big world, he felt very, very small. And he would go to church on Sunday morning. It's a little Baptist church and he would sit in the very back pew so that when the pastor got done preaching, the last song was sung and the preacher put his hands up to do the benediction, he could escape out the back so nobody could stop him. But on one particular day, a new pastor showed up. And Ben Hooper did what he always did. He hid on that back row thinking he would make his escape as soon as the benediction came. But this pastor... This pastor played a trick on him. He didn't do the benediction from the front. He walked to the back and he blocked the door. And then he turned and he looked at Ben Hooper who desperately wanted to escape and he locked eyes with him and he said, I know who you are. And that little boy's heart crumbled. Because he thought, of course you know who I am. Everybody knows who I am. I'm the boy who has no daddy. I'm the boy who doesn't matter. 
and now I'm sitting here in church and you're about to bring it to everyone's attention once again. I'm never coming back. I will never return. And then the preacher continued to look at him and said, I can see the resemblance on your face. I know who you are. You are a child of God. And Ben Hooper said that moment that changed his life because it told him that while he was a nobody in the eyes of the world, he mattered to God. He was a somebody. And God had not left him without a redeemer. But in Jesus Christ, he had brought him into his family and that made all the difference. Do you realize that God has done the same for you? You may feel small, you may feel inconsequential, but there is a God who in love and in mercy has offered to you a redeemer. A greater Obed who would care for you and provide for you in ways that Naomi could have only dreamed of. And in the face of that kind of love, as those who are loved, even though they are small and insignificant and undeserving, there's really only two options. But the same options that present themselves to Naomi, we can do one thing which makes absolutely no sense. You could push the baby off your lap and say, I don't want it. Or you can do what Naomi does in verse 16. You could take the child into your lap and embrace it as the promise of God that will not fail. God loves you. Little, insignificant, nobody undeserving you, and he has not left you without a redeemer. In his hesed love, there are no small people. But not only that, there's no small stories. In verse 18, we get this genealogy that says this. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nishan, Nishan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, let's have a family conversation here for a second and be really honest with each other. What do most of us do when we come to genealogies? We start reading faster, or, or we do what I have to confess I've often done. Your finger runs down the page till you find the last name, and then you start reading again because we don't know what to do with these. This is not how we talk. We don't write books this way. We don't do history this way. We're not usually as deeply concerned about our lineages and what generation begat what generation. So we just kind of skip past this. But there's also this. In this book, this book that is so perfectly put together, where every single word is carefully chosen, where there is not one more word given than is needed, this part feels tacked on. It's almost like the author is just like, you know what, let's throw this in here, and just slaps it on the bottom. Why is it here? You know, you look at the story, Naomi was empty, now she's full. She had no, her children were dead, she now has a new son. Ruth needs rest in the arms of a husband, now she has rest in the arms of Boaz. Why is the genealogy smack dab at the middle of, end of the book? Here's why. Because there is one more need that has still not been met. 
There is one need that is deeper even than the immediate needs of Ruth and Naomi, a need that extends not just to the people at that time, but to the people at all time. And it is a need revealed in the very first verse of Ruth. Israel needs a king. And not just any king, they need a king after God's heart. Because what does the very first verse of Ruth chapter one say? When did this book take place? In the days when the judges ruled. What happens in the days of the judges? It's a time of sin and rebellion and apostasy where God's people are not characterized by their love of God, but instead by their worship of other gods where they are not faithful but faithless, where injustice runs rampant, where people are oppressed, where the poor are trampled on. This moment where it looks as though it is going to be absolutely impossible for God's people to ever live up to the calling that he has given them. And the need that is expressed throughout the book is this, the very last verse of the book of Judges. Here's the problem. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the writer of Ruth is saying, Ruth and Boaz didn't know it. This is coming generations after they have died. But God, through that ordinary couple, God was providing the king Israel needed. And that Hesed love you see sweeping through the lives of Naomi and Ruth, it is a love that God has for his people. But there's even more than that. Because what the writer of Ruth can't see, but the Holy Spirit writing through him could, is that there was another king being provided here. Not just the king that Israel needed, but the king the world needed. That king promised in the very first chapters of the Bible who would redeem this world from sin and death. That king promised who would come from the line of Abraham who would bring blessing not just to Israel, but to every single one of the nations. That king promised from the line of David in 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 11, that one who would be a son of God and who would sit on a throne and would never leave it because he would never die. The one who would bring the rule and the reign of God to bear in the lives and the hearts of his people, who would bring justice and righteousness and peace, and who would destroy sin and death once and for all. And while Ruth and Boaz didn't know it, and the writer of Ruth didn't know it, that's the king that God was providing in full. Because where do we find this genealogy almost word for word again? Matthew chapter one, a chapter that begins the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the king that we needed. That's the king that God has provided. And through the coming together of a Moabite woman and an Israelite man, two seemingly irreconcilable peoples into a one flesh union, God provided the one who would reconcile his people not only to himself but to each other, who out of every tribe and language and people and tongue would make one new people. The walls of hostility washed away. That's what God has done. And how? How did he accomplish this? Don't miss this. It wasn't through extraordinary people with extraordinary gifts 
doing extraordinary things. It wasn't through judges. It wasn't through people bringing down the walls of cities. It wasn't through mighty warriors. God did this through a small, tiny, insignificant Moabite immigrant and an Israelite man. Two people who loved the Lord their God and who loved their neighbor. Ordinary people living lives of ordinary faithfulness and through them God did something extraordinary. Something that in their lives they could not see. But when we look back through the story of redemption to the channels of history, suddenly we can see that God was doing something much bigger than we ever dreamed or imagined. You know, we live in a world that prizes the stories that feel big. We love the stories about people who change the course of history, the ones who make it into our newspapers and into our textbooks and into big biographies you can find on Amazon or on Barnes & Noble. We think about the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates, the guys who start companies in their garages and take the world by storm. We think of Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on that bus in Montgomery and starting a moment in the civil rights movement that reverberates to this day. We think of the story of this church, of Randy Pope coming to Atlanta to attempt something so great for God that is doomed to failure unless God began it with nothing more than a vision for the church and his family and God providing in rich and abundant and powerful ways. And we love those stories and we should. We celebrate those stories. We wanna emulate the people in those stories but there is this one danger lurking in those kinds of stories. We can be tempted to believe that there are two kinds of people and two kinds of story. There are the people who do big things, the people who matter, the stories that are significant, and then there's us. Because we look at ourselves and we say, I'm nobody special. I'm a small person in a big world. I wake up in the morning, I brush my teeth, I change my kids' diapers. I go to work and I try to be faithful where I am. I, I try to get to know my neighbors and be as kind as I can, but I forget to take out my trash on Thursday mornings. I'm faithful to Jesus and I love his church, but I haven't seen thousands come to Christ. I'm a small person living a small story. And there's other people out there living big ones, but that's not me. You know that's not the voice of Jesus talking because that may be the logic of this world, but that's not the logic of the gospel. That's not the logic of Ruth chapter four. God works God brings his kingdom not through extraordinary people doing extraordinary things. God brings his kingdom in ways that we cannot even see in this life through ordinary people living lives of ordinary faithfulness. People who love God and love each other and who may feel as though everything they are doing, it is falling to the ground and everything was in vain, but who in the light of Christ's return when the glory of his presence 
suddenly takes all of history and unveils the redemptive work that God has been doing, we're going to look back and realize that all those small stories, God has made them part of his larger one. And every single one of those stories, they mattered to him. Think of the story of John Wesley. If you don't know John Wesley, he was one of the leaders in the First Great Awakening, a man who preached to thousands and saw thousands of people come to Christ. A guy who in his lifetime, uh, they've recorded, he preached 40,000 times, which if you do the math, that means he's preaching multiple times a day for years. He's the kind of guy you think of and go, there's a big story. There's a story that matters. He's in all the history books. We've all read about him at some point, even if you've forgotten his name. What I love about that story about John Wesley is that while his name is in the history books, the people who converted him, they've been completely forgotten. They're nameless. Because how was John Wesley converted? He went as a pastor who did not yet have peace with God on a boat to the Americas to be a part of a missionary work for a gospel he didn't really completely believe yet. And while he was on that boat, a storm hit the ship and he began to fear and to be terrified because he thought we might die. And if I die, am I ready to stand before my maker? And he noticed this group of Moravian missionaries who in the midst of the same storm, they were not afraid, they were at peace. And they were singing hymns of praise to their God and he said, they have something that I don't have, but I'm not sure what it is. And a few years later, when he came back from the States as a failed missionary, he wandered into a church where they were gathering for a meeting and it just so happened that the pastor, for some reason, he hadn't shown up. And so they looked around the congregation and they said, well, we need somebody to preach and so I guess you're the guy. And they brought this dude up and all he had was this commentary that Martin Luther had written on Romans and so he just started reading the introduction to the book of Romans written by Martin Luther. Not exactly what you think is a winning formula for converting people. And yet John Wesley sitting in that church. He heard those words read over him and as he wrote in his diary, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And the peace with God I so desperately wanted, it was the peace with God that I found in Christ. Through ordinary people, living lives of ordinary faithfulness, God did something extraordinary. I've seen the same thing in my own life. When I look back on how the Lord brought me to faith, it wasn't just through one person, it was through this accumulation of people that God brought into my life. There was Matt Brinkley chasing me down in Athens when I was running from God. There was Steve McGuire, a guy who's on staff with CO now, but at the time was just a fraternity guy who would see me drunk in his fraternity house and would start trying to share the gospel with me. And I'm sure I got really, really frustrated who probably thought everything that he was doing in those moments was a waste. There were the men and women that I met at Celebrate Recovery who showed me what it was to be honest about their brokenness and to trust in a Jesus who was sufficient to save sins. There was my friend James who didn't know what was going on in my life and he wasn't trying to convert me, but just kept talking about Jesus because he loved him. They were my parents who year after year read me the Bible and shared the gospel with me, who prayed for me behind closed doors with prayers I never heard, but God did. And through ordinary people, 
living lives of ordinary faithfulness, God save me. It makes me wonder, what are those things that we can't see? I can see all those things. But what are those things that God is doing through our ordinary faithfulness even now that we will only see in the light of his glory in the day of his return? Those things that maybe in this life felt insignificant, but when we stand in the presence of Jesus, we will realize that he has used them in the larger story for the redemption of all things, and he made us a part. In the economy of God's steadfast love, that love that we see in Jesus, there are no small people, and there are no small stories. We're loved. We matter to him. And in the face of such mercy, in the face of such care, in the face of such tenderness, what can we do but lift our voices with the women of Ruth 4 and say, blessed be the Lord. He has not left us without a redeemer. And while we may not matter to the world, we matter to God. And that changes everything. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning that, Lord, in Jesus, you have not left us without a Redeemer. That, Lord, while we may feel as though we are nobodies and we are small in the eyes of the world, Lord, we are somebodies in your sight. And Lord, we pray that you would take the hope of the gospel, that hope that is proclaimed here in this text, but Lord, not only that, in every single square inch of the Bible, we pray you would take it and press it into our hearts and into our souls. May we be a people who would say, as the psalmist does, my heart is steadfast because I have believed in the steadfast love of my King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.